Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hello, Behind the Bits buddies. I'm still Scott Curtis, and I am excited because I have Lou Deck with me tonight. Now, Lou is one of the original comedians at the Comedy Store and is on the Wall of Fame there. He's the author of Stand Up Decoded, Be As Funny As You Think You Are, as well as Poor Lou's Almanac, which uh, got him nominated for a Peabody Award. And he's actually talking to me tonight. This is crazy. How you doing, Lou? Uh, one second, be right with you. And this is Lou Deck for the Sarcasm Network, signing off. Back to you in the studio. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing, Scott? I, I, I see you are uh, protecting yourself well. Well, um, um, those of us that are with gray hair and uh, need to take extra steps. Uh, when I'm on with the network, they've got cooties, so I always like to wear a mask when I'm with the Sarcasm Network. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Lou, I just have to say I'm uh, uh, honored to have you on the uh, podcast because, uh, you know, you're you're one of them I wanted to get when I got this started, and uh, it's just great to have somebody of your uh, stature um, on the podcast. Uh, we, we talked earlier, and I know you don't want to be called a legend, but uh, if you're on the Wall of Fame there, you kind of are. So you just, you're just going to well, have to live with that. Um, it, it, it's a big club, and um, that's where I started. Yeah. I'm a comedy store original. Yes. And as being one of Mitzi's boys, I, I, I don't want to get a big head about it, but there I do because yeah. it's my club, not theirs now. Right. right. Yeah. Mitzi has passed and those of us that helped her make the club and we're in her personal development system. I owe her everything. In fact, if you check the book, uh, I've dedicated the book to the three women in my life who are all now gone. Mitzi, my mother and my wife. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, okay, at the comedy stores, it, it, it's deeper and crazier than you could imagine mm. over all these years. But the, she first put me on the wall in 1988 when I came back from uh, touring after the first five years on tour. Mm. And that since then, they built a back patio and balcony and covered up a ton of names. Yeah. Wow. Oh. <laughs> and nobody knows the old people now. Most of us are are done. Mm -hmm. However, the two of us that are there quite frequently, and then I was honored they put me back on the wall last April. Uh huh. Well, that's great. And oh, oh, what? oh, oh! I told you I had some tricks. Uh huh. Here's my first trick. All right. There you are, and you, you've got uh, uh, Tiffany Haddish right above you. Uh, yes. She her her ceremony was the day before mine. All right. Uh, let's see. I have some red shoes. 
Sorry. Well, let's. Well, let's I know. Um, let's be honest. First time I've ever done this. Zoom. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm not prepared. Yeah. Well, listen. I'll 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 take you through it. I've done it a few times, so um, I I can't hold your hand of of uh, uh, in person, but I'll do it virtually for you. One thing here's I want. Here's what I agree to do for you. Uh huh. Ask away. Okay. Ask what you want to know. I'll tell you. If it's yeah. about stand up mechanics, you got it. If it's about career, you got it. If it's about funny, you got it. But yeah. you got to tell me what you want from me. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to drill you. Um, you know, you showed that picture um, um, with the red shoes. Before we get into anything, can you tell the story of how you became the comedian with the red shoes? Oh, uh, okay, okay. So, uh, crazy setup. Uh, I came to the comedy store in '76. I worked my way through six or seven, eight, nine jobs running the club, being director of video, director of improv. Finally, I get it together and I get a job. It's a review show in Reno uh, at Harris. A review show means many kinds of acts. Voice singer, trumpet player, juggler, comic, girl singer, dancing girls, orchestra. Uh -huh. So you're there for a very short time. One of the things about the comedy store is we invented this saying, give them the light. That means get off the stage. You've done enough time. Yeah. And that it was always a problem for most people. Uh, and if Mitzi was there, she'd just send me or Argus or one of the MCs after you and we'd take you off stage. Uh -huh. When I show up in Vegas, they have a microphone that disappears into the ground at, I'm assigned 18 minutes. At 18 minutes, they don't care. It's gone. Uh -huh. Get off. Yeah. <laughs> Turned out I was third act on. Next behind me were the dancing girls and huge, the biggest stage I'd ever worked, 35 yards across from each sign. As soon as the mic dis I tell my last joke, say goodnight, the mic disappears, they come on. Mm -hmm. They send me through the orchestra pit, the stairs to where the, the band is. And I fall off them. I've had bright lights in my eyes for 18 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I fell off and bummed myself. I'm a ball player, I fall all the time. The third show, I fell off again and cut my face. They gave me a little piece of uh, uh, something to cover it up, some makeup, and I went on fourth show. Uh -huh. and I fell and gashed my head. Oh. So I had to go to the ho hospital and get stitches. I didn't make the fifth show. They didn't care. They were mad. The boy comic wasn't there for the fifth show. Yeah. The next morning, I showed up before I went to work. I went to Kmart. I found some fluorescent red plastic shoes. And I put them on, and now I can see my feet on the stairs and I don't fall anymore. Uh-huh. That's where they came from. Yeah. And uh, that's been with you ever since, right? Well, three weeks later, I'm back in, in at the store. I own this place. I mean, I'm head of security, head of video, head of lots of things, and nobody knows, can say anything to me but Mitzi. Uh-huh. I'm standing around getting high with the boys, and somebody doesn't show, and they call me for a fallout. And I get to run in the original room, having done 28 shows in the last 14 days. Mm -hmm. I'm better than I've ever been. Yeah. And I'm kicking ass. And the guy whose spot it is shows up late. And I, he's a friend of mine. Mike Binder, ever heard the name? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. It's Binder. I bring him on so he gets the, the, the spot. 
And I rush off and uh, I'm so happy. I fly down the back stairs of the original room right to where I work. There's my bar stool where I sit when I have the back hall. Uh And I full body block Johnny Carson onto the floor. Oh, no. (laughs) I did not know he was in the club. Uh He had watched me. I had been to the Carson show coaching other comics. And he thought I was a writer, so he came in to see what I got. And he gets up, and I'm horrified. Oh, my God. I'm just, uh-huh. oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Carson. He says, Lou, I didn't know you did stand-up. <laughs> oh, my heart. Oh, man. Oh. And he could see it in my face. He says, no, no, I thought you were a writer, this, that. Hey, red shoes, distinctive footwear. Uh-huh. Good idea. <laughs> I've not worn red shoes since that day. That's great. That's branding. That's uh. Well, before before there was branding, that was eighty six. Yeah. Um, certainly, nobody of my generation understood it then. Right. And I noticed over the next couple of years, I'm touring with probably the best headliner I ever saw, Ali Joe Prater. Mm-hmm. He selected me to come out. Uh, I wasn't strong enough to do thirty five at the uh, when I first came out with him, but after six months, I got better. Mm-hmm. We fired the middle act. We split the money, and we're doing a two-man show anywhere. Mm. And that's so because he's getting so many bookings. The club owners always watch to uh, come to the club to see the show, to see Ollie, who they're paying a lot of money for, to see me. Mm -hmm. He runs into it. Ollie gets called into Vegas for Mitzi, and I'm sitting on my butt doing nothing. And an agent asked for another agent. He wants... Tall, crazy-haired guy, Georgia. I don't know, white man, thirty-eight, uh, uh, red shoes, Lou Deck, <laughs> and that's where it caught on. Yeah, I was still just wearing them on weekends and things like that. And another agent said to me, if he, if he hadn't mentioned red shoes, I wouldn't have been able to give him your name. Ergo. They bought me off a comedy club in Miami and put me on a boat the next week. Uh-huh. I traded like a minor league baseball player. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> so the red shoes became a thing. That's a great story. Um, so obviously you had some life before you went uh, to the comedy store and uh, started, started up there. Um, when you were growing up and uh, even as a teenager, you know, what comics really caught your eye and, and who did you like growing up? Well, I don't know how to say to people that the, that the age they are now, mm-hmm. but in the fifties and sixties and seventies, we had, variety shows and they always put a comic on so Mm. ed sullivan gary moore all of those i've got a secret kind of things i followed the new york comedy scene Uh, most of my favorites were from the borscht belt Mm. um shelly berman yeah um corvette monica uh, uh sid caesar um but in the new age, I didn't like anybody. I can mm. remember George Carlin um, wearing a coat and tie, thinking he was phony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jerry Lewis, not my bag. Yeah. And then my dad brought home a Bill Cosby album. Uh-huh. And we can't see him, just his voice. Yeah. Stories, boy. And so 
uh, a year later, my dad, mother and father got divorced. So a year later, I see my dad and he says, I'm glad we played that album and I can recite it to him having only heard it once. Uh -huh. That's how much it impressed me. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all Yankee boo <laughs> I grew up in the South. I got to have a living. Uh -huh. So I never really thought about it in the slightest. I was I went in the Navy uh, in 1970 to uh, get them to teach me electronics so I could go to college. Mm -hmm. That was my plan. It lasted about a year and eight months, got all crushed up in a horrible <laughs> uh, gurney accident. I was a hospitalman. We were trying to evacuate okay. somebody down some long stairs. And the guy in front fell, and we all went down. Oh, I came home in a box, but about a year later now, I'm out of college. I mean, out of the Navy. They're paying for my college. So I, you know, immediately went straight to the college uh, my parents went to, and I'm going to be a radio, TV, and uh, film producer. Uh huh. <laughs> so I got into public access before anybody knew the name. Uh huh. My college. Buddies and I sued LBJ's grandson, Pat Cox of Cox Communications, <laughs> and forced him to give us equipment, a million dollars worth of equipment, Ooh. to start the first public access channel in uh, Texas. Ah. And we would give the equipment to the people to have them bring us back a, a tape to play, and they'd bring the tape back to play. It was unmanageable, and they broke the equipment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> After a while, we start sending a person out with each set of equipment to basically produce the show for them. And I started doing that. About uh -huh. 10 or 12 shows into that, somebody said, hey, you're funny. You should be a comedian. Uh -huh. And I went, no, I'm a TV producer. And he says, I'll pay you 50 bucks for three shows a week. And I became a comedian. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Living on the GI Bill. So, you know, uh -huh. at that point, True story. I don't know if I should say this, but I watched jo Johnny Carson for a week and stole ten jokes, and that, that was my act. <laughs> I think a lot of people have done that. <laughs> well, very interesting. Within a year, I'm working for the Comedy Store, and I get to meet four of the people I took jokes from. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Oh my. <laughs> well, difference in not being an amateur and not knowing what's going on and turning pro. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, was, well, at least there was no internet then, so nobody could uh, prove all, anything. All bands start as as garage bands mm -hmm. playing other people's songs. Yep, yep. That's that that's hilarious. So you're doing you're doing these three shows a week. What uh, you you were were you in Texas at the time? Yes, this is at Austin, Texas, at University of Texas, and uh, basically, <laughs> here's the funny part to me. A gentleman had a valet and mime troupe and wanted an MC that could do time between acts. Uh -huh. <laughs> Pandora's traveling troubadours. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, he never heard of Johnny Carson. He thought my jokes were brilliant. Well, of course yeah. they are. I got them off Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That's great. Well, so that's there you are in Austin. What, what, uh, prompted you to go to LA and get in at the comedy store? Uh, minor jump. Uh, when I got to Texas after the Navy, 
Uh, I was born in Austin. My parents were going to school there in the 50s. Uh-huh. I came back in the early 70s to go to school there and found out that the, the out-of-state fees were triple. Mm-hmm. So I had to work for a year in Texas to be able to qualify as an in-state student. I started in Houston. Uh, I'll tell you at the end of the story why it's important Houston. My mom's maiden name in Houston, but just to get a job and make some money before I went to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved back to Austin, I went. I was able to find the house my parents were living living in when I was born. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, the the, the funny story is I'm born Texan. My parents moved when I was four to Georgia. There are still toe marks in the ground. No! <laughs> As a Texan, I haven't much respect for Georgia. Yeah. Too much racism, too much stupidity. Uh-huh. Um, and yet, I was raised there between the time I was four and the time I was 20. Uh-huh. When I look at my life now and my personality, I'm a Southern gentleman. There's no yeah. doubt about it. The culture got me. Yeah. But not the bad parts. Yeah, I was going to say, not the racism, right? Well, uh, I can't go to, I only visit Georgia to see my family, and I can't stay there long because of the racism. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been a comparative religion guy my whole life. My mom was Methodist. My dad was Baptist. We'd spend one week at at one church, the next week at the other church, and the Mm -hmm. third week we'd go to a different church. Yeah. So I saw... 10 Catholic masses in Latin I never understood for 15 years until mm. I went to a mass in English. Yeah. And Buddhism and all the kind. But what I'm saying is, so I hold no bias in my heart for your color of your skin or your geographic location or your religion. Mm-hmm. But I'm no goody two shoes. There's one group I really hate and I, I just detest them. Ask me who. who who's that? Ventriloquist. <laughs> I hate them. They're sick individuals. Look where they put their hands. They can't allow themselves to be them. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> and I've had to I've had to drive a couple of them around in my career in my car for a week. Uh-huh. So so did they did First they talk to you in both voices? First there was, we're trying to think where it was. It was in Indiana, Evansville, Indiana. Uh, I've had a couple other comics drive in. We're playing golf in the day and we're all driving back for our weekend gigs. And when I get back to the condo at, in Evansville, the club owner's there, and he's about to fire me. He says, Lou, I'm going to have to fire you because you've been too mean to the ventriloquist. <laughs> he put his little dummy thing on the kitchen table, you know, in the condo. He opens it up. It's got four-poster canopy bed. He props him no up. And what I don't know is, and his big joke is, he has some remote-controlled devices. So as you walk by it, it'll pop up and he'll say something to you. Oh, shit. Get out of my car. <laughs> I won't. Like, you know, so I'm driving down to town with a guy and his thing starts talking to me while I'm driving. <laughs> I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. That is the form of comedy. I wrote, I wrote six, seven years ago called Attack in Jail All Ventriloquist. Yeah. <laughs> But I have my bias, and but moving past that, all I ever wanted in my whole life was to feel a little special. Mm-hmm. First off, being a comic makes you feel special. Yep. 
Second off, being the comic in red shoes makes you feel really, really special. So. Yeah. <laughs> After that, it was learning to talk right, speak in joke formula, choose the things not to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to do this with my entire life. I wouldn't have given it anything but my entire life. And now it's 44 years later. I, I lost my wife last year and she had been bugging me for two years. Go back. To mm-hmm. I retired to take care of her. And uh, I just didn't think this would happen. I thought I'd die before she would. Mm-hmm. So now she died. I cried and cried and cried. Months go by and the phone starts ringing. Offer after offer, different situations. Oh, here's another experiment. Behind me is a poster uh-huh. for Sam Kennison's movie. Can you see it? Yep. Yep. It's perfect. It's right in frame. Okay, well, hey, some of us have worked video before. Uh, <laughs> right here, underneath Sam's hand, there are two figures behind the comedy store. Uh-huh. Not only am I in Sam Kennison's movie, they made a cartoon out of me. Oh. And then they used it on the poster. Oh, cool. <laughs> so... Uh, oh, okay. You'll get this. Um, frame, frame, frame. One night, Sam and I are standing behind the comedy store. It's after two. Everybody's gone as far as audience members, but we have 25 comics roaming the place and uh, 10 or 12 staff members. And we're hiding in the parking lot by Mitzi Shore's car because we can see everybody each direction. We're having a joint together. Uh-huh. And we hear Mitzi getting beaten up at the back of the store. Uh Oh, so we ran over to save her. This has happened to me several times where I had to rescue her. And I went around the last car. Sam did the old Hollywood slide job across the hood. Mm-hmm. And kicked the guy right in the face off her. Sam became manager of the Westwood comedy store <laughs> two weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> by having the alone time and, and the power and the call to put on himself. Yeah. He became the beast. Took about mm-hmm. a three month period. And now the coolest part is they made me a cartoon. And oh yeah. This is me and Sam smoking a joint behind the comedy store. That's neat. From a movie. That's really cool. I got to show my mom that before she died. Ah, uh, that's neat. Um, it's every American kid's dream to grow up and be a, a superhero that rescues a damsel in distress. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and then they made me a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> so that happened. Uh, e entertainment channel e hollywood today uh, the real story behind the comedy store <laughs> and used four pieces of film that i had shot personally when i was video director uh-huh nice little check in the mail yeah <laughs> um guy wrote a book 
I'm dying up here. Yeah. About the great comedy strike Mm -hmm. and features me in the book. And if you look in the book, half of the pictures are from me. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, I was, I'll set the record straight here. I was the deepest amateur. I was, uh, barely past open mics. Uh, uh-huh. I was in a comedy team named heck and deck and we were crazy and famous for being crazy and loud and stuff, but we were going nowhere. We were just too crazy. Yeah. And then suddenly when I work for the comedy store, uh, as a doorman, I get promoted to the MC and I'm on stage whenever they need somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly I think I've mentioned this before. I figure I was 159th at the comedy store in line of comics. Uh-huh. And when the strike hit and the 150th funniest people in the world are out in front of the comedy store with picket signs and no yucks and no bucks and they're pissed off. And now I'm ninth in line. Mm. I hosted an hour in each room for every night of the first three weeks of the strike. Yeah. Thank you, fellas. Sure appreciate the stage time. Yeah. For those that don't, for those that don't know, um, we I should mention that the uh, the comedy store strike is a historical time in comedy because uh, the 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 way Mitzi ran the comedy store is it was a it was a launching ground and it was basically how you got on Carson, which made made you famous, and then you're good to go. So she didn't pay the comics, and the comics decided that they wanted to get paid. So there was two sides to it. There was the ones that wanted to get paid that did the strike and the other side and you were you were on the other sides and you worked during that time well i prefer to think that these people went crazy uh-huh they associated themselves with a different job than being funny uh-huh. and tried to negotiate and then because they were self-centered insane people like you and i who do stand up mm-hmm. they first started with threats and insults they actually just put a committee together and marched inside and in the middle of a meeting, we're deciding how to pay mm. and said, you can't pay us and we'll burn your club. Well, they didn't say that. They said, yeah, you're a cunt. You should pay us. Mm-hmm. And she said, get out of my club. All right. Now the next couple of meetings were a little softer than that. Yeah. <laughs> but no one in show business walks into somebody in show business and says, do it my way or I'll, I'll end your living. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. Whether or not comics deserve to be paid anytime, any place is a completely legal issue. Leave it to the lawyers. Mm-hmm. Or if they formed a union, which they didn't, they formed a trade association that has different laws concerning them. Uh, as you can see, if you're involved in the strike, you have a definite opinion about who is right and who is wrong mm-hmm. and how it happened. But unless you speak to that other person's whose name I don't mention, mm-hmm. you'll get his viewpoint. Right. So I lived in Mitzi's house. She had a great big mansion on the top of the Hollywood Hills, one step above the comedy store with Mike Binder, Yakov Smirnoff, Argus Hamilton, Ali Joe Prater, and a guy named Andy Silverstein. Who will later, when Sam Kennison is manager of the Westwood, Andy Silverstein is a impressionist. He does full costume and music 
impressions. Mm-hmm. He sneaks over to Westwood and gets extra time from the other man, from Kennison, and he becomes Dice Clay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm living in her house with her hand-chosen comics, and they tell her off in front of me. And I'm from yeah. the South. You don't attack a woman in front of me. Mm-hmm. They hold me back from going after those people. Yeah. Now, I'm not necessarily a violent guy, but I stand up for women. Mm-hmm. And that, so right off the top, we have a problem here in communication. I will tell you, she thought Comedy Store was an artist colony. We used on the average of 22 comics a night in those days. Mm-hmm. Could you operate paying any of them more than $5? No. Yeah, no. Fundamentally, legally, and, and even in show business, what they wanted wasn't going to happen. Mm. If they'd gone about it in a more deliberate fashion with legal advice and negotiators, not themselves. Yeah. They'd have won, they'd have won completely because we were in the process of doing that. Mm. But again, I find myself, I'm on the other side with Mitzi mm. and she's gone now. Yeah. So I won't have other people say, Oh, this and that, and this and that. No, I was there. This is how it happened. If we look back at it in a logical situation, they were doomed to begin with. Yeah. Now, she, her favorite line after that was, the comedy strike was like getting 150 divorces. Because <laughs> she cared. She was handpicking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when all of those people revolted on her, it was actually only 14 or 15. Look in my book. You'll see the a story called I'm still standing because uh, I name him the fabulous Mm -hmm. 14 and he's in the number one name. Yeah. Uh, But I'm sure he feels just as strong as me. And my final chess piece move on this is to tell you the truth. I have what most of them don't have. Even the stars like Letterman and Leno Mm -hmm. didn't get to do what I got to do. So I've earned my right to say it. And I'm going to say simply this. If any one of us had owned a comedy club and a bunch of jerk offs like this walked into your club and told you what to do and how to earn your living after you'd earn all those way. And she was a single woman operating on Sunset Boulevard in the nightclub business. Mm -hmm. If you'd owned the club, you'd have told them to go away too. Yeah. And when I run across them and we discuss it, I always say the same thing. Did you ever own a club? No. If you had owned a club and somebody walked in, would you would you agree to what they wanted? No. Yeah. Shut up. Okay. So that's my end on the strike. I'm sorry. I am passionate. Yeah. But I try to I try to be precise as well, to and- why. It happened when it happened. Yeah, and it's it's good to hear your viewpoint because it seems like the other viewpoint gets all the press, even even now. They're stars. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's it's good to get your viewpoint. Um, I'm not going to come at it with a viewpoint. I have a few opinions myself, but I wasn't there, so uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh in on it. But it's re- well, it's really good to hear that. First off. All that labor business is nasty business too. Yeah. Tough business. My um, sister married uh, an Atlanta police officer Mm -hmm. who after five, 10 years, she kind him into quitting 
the police force and he became security for a GM plant. And because he was a good guy and fairly uh, uh, organized, he became a union rep mm-hmm. for the security union. And he counted it uh, as the worst 20 years he ever spent. Yeah. Honest man in a tough, tough business. Yeah. Yeah. No that doubt. is to say labor negotiations. Right. Yeah. That's rough. Um, so you saw Kennison right from the beginning. What was your, what was your opinion uh, when you saw him the first time? What, what, what kind of a impression did he make on you? Unique for me. Uh, only maybe three comics in the whole country made it out of their spot and went through Houston to see Sam in the early days. Mm-hmm. Three months after the strike ends, I tell Metsy, I've gone crazy. I need to take some time off. I'm going to mm-hmm. drive back to Georgia and see my family and this and that. Drive back here. I'll be back in a month. Coming back, I stopped in Houston, where I had moved to L.A. from, mm-hmm. to see a friend. And I walked in, and good God, there's my partner, Hack, sitting on the couch, too. Uh-huh. Oh, we've been hearing stories about you guys out in Los Angeles, and now my friends in Houston want to see validation that Hack and Deck were funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I say, well, geez, too bad there's not a comedy club here. And they go, oh, there is. I went, okay, uh, get me a number. Pick up a phone, call him. This is Lou Deck here. I'm from the comedy store in Los Angeles. I happen to be in town. Mm-hmm. Wondering if we could sneak seven minutes tonight. Oh, and if, you know, your guys get out to the West Coast, let me know at the comedy store. And uh, so we came down and we did a set. We did only seven minutes because it's all we had. Mm-hmm. Kicked ass. The owners asked us to stay afterwards and talk to their their local comics. Mm-hmm. Sam was in the group. I didn't see him, but three or four people told me he had crucified himself on a billboard out in front of the uh, comedy club uh-huh. and they banned him for language. <laughs> Mensel, let's see. Sharon and Bob Mensel were improvisers that moved to Texas and opened a stand-up club and then an annex to do the stand-up in and do improv mm-hmm. in the comedy club. And they couldn't take how harsh Sam was talking. So they said, Sam, we can't use that kind of language. He says, I'll do it any way I want to. He says, you won't do it here. Uh-huh. Two weeks later, getting those spots, and Sam figures out who rents the billboard. He rents it for a week. He puts himself on it. He nails himself to it <laughs> like, right? And he's the biggest story in town. Uh-huh. Well, they take him back. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and... Eight months later, I'm sitting in the back hall of the comedy store, and uh, Sam taps me on the shoulder. Hi, Lou. Uh, so I put him in the system, and uh, we were horrified. I mean, it, it was very funny. Uh-huh. But you can't say that on TV. Yeah. <laughs> so we he kind of stayed in the background. Mitzi saw him a couple of times, and then he made friends. And a bunch of people stepped up to Mitzi and said, you got to take a look at this guy. Mm -hmm. That was before the beast. He was just preaching real hard. Mm -hmm. Imagine that language, preaching real hard. (laughs) Yeah. 
at any rate, it's like everything else. You come to LA, you think you know it, then you realize that what you know somebody's already doing and there's a line six feet deep of, of people doing that. You need to figure out who you are. Yeah. And learn to say it in the format that you can sell it. So Sam hangs around for a while and he's doing okay. And then he's doing what none of us are doing. He's slipping out and doing the rock and roll places where the ah, stuff works. Mm. And then he got about three months alone in Westwood and then the beast just came out. Now you could see if you knew the preacher, <laughs> you could see where the beast came from. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, instead of just screaming this, why don't you say the funny part third instead of first? Mm. He had to learn to tell the jokes, right? Yeah. So Sam would tell everybody, if you're on a Westwood after midnight, there's no crowd here. Call me and I'll let you know. Uh, and no matter what the crowd was there, he says, now nah, there's no crowd here. So the acts wouldn't come in. Now Sam gets to go on stage and do an hour. Yeah. <laughs> the experimentation alone allowed him to grow two years past anybody at sunset because he's on stage an hour. Yeah. They're all doing no. 15 minute sets. Yeah. So you can see what had happened. And then, you know, Sam and Sam is a, um, a legend in his own mind. Mm. <laughs> as soon as he got real popular, he got real manipulative and asshole. He, yeah. And would demand things of people around him acts or girls or just horrible things. And mm. it just got worse and worse and worse and worse after he got famous. So after a point, <laughs> I'm living in the, in the Valley <laughs> with another comic who quit, but that he and I are just breaking out of the store doing hundred dollar shows a mm. hundred miles up from LA. Yeah. And we're both out of town that weekend and we let Sam and Carl come stay in our apartment because they have nowhere to stay. Mm -hmm. And when we get back on Monday, Sam has stolen me blind. <laughs> he took video equipment that belonged to the comedy store. Uh, I had a, I had a uh, footlocker underneath my bed with my dad's naval uniform. Oh man. From Korea. And Sam cut a hole in it with an axe and shit in it. I mean, took a dump in it. Oh. I mean, Sam's bad, 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 bad. <laughs> so I broke my path, my path off of him. I went to Mitzi and told her that she should not be in a room alone with him. Yeah. And that, you know, start counting the, the, the cash against the tickets at Westwood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can no longer stand behind what that man has become. Yeah. I don't think the drugs helped. And I, well, I'm going to tell you first, they're making a big thing about he had a cranial injury. Uh -huh. I'll give you that. I've had 12 myself. I understand legitimate uh -huh. cranial injuries. Uh, also, the drugs didn't help, but it, the drugs intensify what's there, doesn't change what's there. Mm. Sam had no respect for himself, so he showed very little respect for everybody else. Yeah. And I want to uh, check this out. I think it's John Dunn said, any man's death diminishes me. And I buy into that. So mm -hmm. I took no joy to hear that Sam had died. Mm -hmm. But uh, knowing many people, including his brother, that 
described it or whatever. This was God getting two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. Enough about Kennison. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a sad story, obviously. Um, no, no. He saw the top before he went. He saw yeah. the height you and I will never see. He sold yeah. out Madison Square Gardens. Mm-hmm. What more do you want? Yeah, yeah. No I doubt. hate people who make it and then blow it. Yeah, right. There's a lot. That, that's a long list. I you think know. everybody blows it, then you make it again and not blow it the second time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you live. <laughs> You, you got to live through it. I I'm older to, than you. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, another surprise. All right. Now, it's probably going to be backwards. No, it's uh, it's the right way. Uh, how about that? Yeah, I've got your uh, I, I've got your uh, camera, so everything comes out right. So oh, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have seen some stuff lately where. People did not uh, realize that they were, you know, that their Notre Dame teacher is on backwards. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been trying to figure out ways and glad you could do the chemtrail. Yeah, the, the, the magic what, of zoom, zoom video. This is what the book looks like uh-huh. in hardcover. There's some good stuff in there, too. <sighs> While I do this, I'll tell you a quick story. Broke my back. Um, I had a bad back from driving almost a million miles on tour. Uh-huh. Got back to LA chasing this girl. I've got a tour van I can sleep in and all the um, clothes you want to take, golf clubs and everything. Mm-hmm. It breaks down on the big freeway here, the 405, and I have to push it out of the fast lane. Turns out I broke my back. Ooh. Well, now I'm going to be down four months. What am I going to do? I, I my job is driving down to town. I do a hundred cities a year. This is mm-hmm. my 14th year. I'm going to get near a hundred. Yeah. And I can't do anything. So I start writing topical jokes. I get to join Leno's fax team. Uh, Leno's fax team, wherever you are on tour, uh, get up, have a martini, a cup of coffee, a joint, some heroin, whatever you need, read the news, watch the TV, write some jokes and get them in a fax machine to L.A. noontime. So Jimmy Brogan, a fine comic himself, the mm-hmm. head writer, grabs him out of the uh, fax machine, walks over to his desk, and will carry only the best jokes into the meeting. Whee, what a game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not selling him a lot, but a, one or two, I'm on the list, right? Yeah. Uh, and that then I realized I had 400 jokes left over after a month. Uh-huh. I don't do topical stuff in my act. So what am I going to do with this? I started doing Poor Lou's Almanac. Uh-huh. Somebody said you should write a magazine article. So I've been on the cheers.org mm-hmm. for 12 years. I published almost 80 articles with them. When it came time to put a book together, I heard a journalist I respect intensely say, most columnists are doing their first book with a collection of their columns. Mm -hmm. Ergo, I went back to all of the stuff I wrote about comedy and put together the book because I wanted to be for stand-ups by stand-ups, Mitzi Shore's motto, Mm -hmm. stand-ups by stand-ups. I put a lesson in behind every story and 
the story tells a lesson, but then here's a hardcore lesson for stand-up. And that's my book. Yeah. I put it on sale for $3.99 on, as an ebook because I remember when I was a young comic, I had 15 bucks to spend on a, yeah. uh, a book. And I did it for me and to give back because so many great comics helped me. Mm. It has done incredibly well in money. It paid me back all the money I spent in far more than I ever thought. Uh I still get get checked, but then the ego burst come. Somebody sent me something from the internet in China last week. Turns out they're selling my book in Chinese. All right. Turns out they're selling my book in Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and German. Wow. I have a 12 or 13 students because of the book Mm. in Africa. One of my students placed second on South Africa's Got Talent last year. (laughs) Oh, cool. That's really neat. Not this Christmas, but the Christmas before. They had a comedy festival in Abaliki, Nigeria for the comic in red shoes. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they all read my book, and we go back and forth on Toby's group on Facebook and uh-huh. Messenger and stuff. Right. So I did that. The book itself was more, and what I learned was, and I didn't think I was going to learn this was, um, I did it because I thought I owed somebody something. I wanted to leave a footprint, you know. Mm-hmm. But what do, doing the book taught me, God, I did a hundred things I di- I didn't remember that I did. Yeah. Yeah, I was one of the first stand-up uh, comics in Korea in 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, North Korea. Yeah. Uh, I did all kinds of stuff that I never thought about. Mm-hmm. So stand-up decoded taught me that there's a second book in me. Uh-huh. And in stand-up decoded, it's gone on to inspire some other people. Uh, there's a story in Stand Up Decoded called How to Get Happy. Mm-hmm. I can't sometimes make other people happy. Depends mm-hmm. on the circumstance, right? Right. But I can show you how to make yourself happy anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. That's a self-programming moment. Mm-hmm. It all starts with a smile. Yeah. Yeah. And out of that became a painting because the person that tells that story is in Dorpin man, Ah. a low key (laughs) superhero. Uh (laughs) When you do a hundred cities a year, you get back to the hotel at midnight and you find out that there's nothing to do and you're bored with TV and stuff. And I would look around town and there's trouble up there in all them cities at that late at night. Mm -hmm. I found myself trying to harmless people and trying to, give them a couple of bucks and make them laugh. Yeah. And that when I realized I had been a complete circle in, it was the comedy caravan. And, uh, I found myself in Lexington, Kentucky three times that year, found the same homeless guy that year. And then the third time he said to me, well, I do remember you making me laugh. I wish I could make myself laugh. Mm-hmm. I can't show you how to make yourself laugh but i can show you how to make yourself happy yeah (laughs) and it became past stand-up 
it's me giving back. And now I can, uh, it's a painting. Mm. It's a screenplay. Yeah. And now there's a costume and I've done some film. Mm-hmm. I spent my entire life learning to be Lou. Basic, simple Lou, good heart, well-spoken, witty. And now I have a costume with a cape on and I'm in Dorfin Man. (laughs) (laughs) I I argued that I wouldn't do it until I read, because I only do me. And I realized Endorphin Man is me. So I did it. Hey, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pause here. All the folks that are watching on Facebook live, uh, we're going to leave you because, uh, you need to, uh, subscribe to the behind the bits podcast. If you want to hear the rest and, uh, also watch behind the bits on YouTube because there's going to be a video coming up. So Lou, Lou and I are going to keep talking, but I'm sorry, you can't listen anymore. So we're going to stay. Bye bye. It's just a teaser. <laughs> All right, they're gone. We can really talk now. Okay. <laughs> if I go on too long, redirect me. Yeah. Hey, I did want to. I did want to talk about a little bit of nuts and bolts stuff because uh, you you said something that uh, uh, sparked interest in me. Uh, that first tour you did with Ollie, um, you said you weren't really ready for it when you started, um, but you made yourself ready. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Where you were and where you were when you came out of it. Okay. Uh, as I broke out of the comedy store, I broke out quicker than most because I was a host and most guys that were producing their own shows as headliner wanted a good host, mm-hmm. including Bob Zaney. Yeah. <laughs> so when Bob and Zaney start setting up shows outside of LA, he comes to me and says, I want you to host my show. Mm-hmm. So amongst all the people at my level, I'm out of the comedy store earning money because I'm a good host, 15, 20 minutes. So I became a good host. Mm. When I went out with Ollie at first, he just wanted me as his opening act. But because I was a good host, Mm. and we had less than a delightful time with several middle acts in the same car. (laughs) And he said, when you get strong enough, we'll fire him. So. First off, you got to look at your material mm-hmm. right now. I'll tell you, I'm the least talented comic you'll ever talk to on your show about comedy. <laughs> I'm not. Talented. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not talented. I'm skilled. Uh-huh. I do have a talent. As it turns out, it took me 40 years to realize what my talent was. My dad's job. He was an aviation systems analyst. Uh-huh. So I can look at a system and tell you where to increase efficiency, lose drag Mm. right now. Apply that to linguistics and comedy. I use words for their intended effect, Mm -hmm. especially when I'm doing stand-up. So first, I don't walk on stage and say anything except a joke attempt or an audience Mm warm-up. Uh, old, old, old vaudeville um, technique. You take, if you're doing 20 minutes, you need to have figure three minutes uh, a joke. You need to have 60 jokes. Um, you take your very best joke and do it 60th. Mm-hmm. 
because they always remember the last thing you do. Yeah. You take your best, your second best joke and you do it first. Because mm-hmm. you need to get them. Yeah. And you stack them back and forth between. In the very middle is where you try new material because it's strong material on either side of it. Mm-hmm. So if you lose them, you can get them back. Yeah. So at a matter of, uh, we used to make fun of the New York acts that come to LA and do subway jobs. <laughs> it doesn't work to when you're in Miami to talk about LA traffic. Mm, right. <laughs> so my first thought was I need, I need to take these two bunch of jokes that are inside LA jokes and get rid of them and put something in and they fill, you know, write your ass off in two or three days, what you'll, you'll fill one in mm-hmm. and then you fill in the next one. So my first trick was learning to write a joke about where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I get to town, I check in the hotel, I pull out the local phone book and I read the uh, local knowledge. Mm. Go down, talk to the, the girl at the front row. Okay, Lucille, I'll, I'll do the same interview with you, really. Mm-hmm. Your town you're in is not South Bend. It is... Mishawaka. Mishawaka. Yep. Okay, what's the podunk place right outside of Mishawaka? Uh, Osceola. <laughs> Here's the joke. Ooh, Mishawaka. Gateway to Osceola. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now I have an opening line that'll work everywhere I go. Uh-huh. That's a, that's a trick Bob Zaney uses too. So, now <laughs> fill each hole. Suddenly I got 30 minutes, we can fire the middle. Uh-huh. <laughs> My pay doubled. Uh-huh. And since I'm host, I can do up to 35 if it takes me five warming them up. Mm-hmm. Now, gosh, gee whiz, it's a good host. Is one thing I do is warm up the crowd. And if you think I do a good job for other comics, imagine how good a job I do warming up for me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole, it's called a cold opening. Uh-huh. I don't need the music to play. I don't need anybody to stand in the microphone and say, welcome, Lou Deck. Just turn the music off and I'll walk on. Mm-hmm. And I will do four or five minutes as the host without ever saying my name. Mm-hmm. Then I'll say, you're ready for the first guy. I really like the first guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'd sleep with him <laughs> and introduce myself. Uh-huh. Bingo. I've got a warm up crowd. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of stand-up is showmanship, not just jokes. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part was to take what I knew about showmanship and find what worked about it in the rural areas of the country. Mm -hmm. Not even rural, just any wood. Ollie and I did everywhere. Yeah, you guys were doing just one-nighters and... and... Well, he liked one-nighters because they paid more. Yeah. And um, once I got to where I was with him in his car... I went after six months. I, I joined him in about an August, and I went about uh, six months, and then we started the next year. And he says, "Oh, make your deal, boy. You take care of all the shit. I'll pay you a thousand bucks a week. Deal." 
you know, that meant driving, uh-huh. hosting, carrying the bags, talking to the booker, uh-huh. keeping the hookers in line, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I was tour manager uh, at the comedy store. Mitzi always said I was the nearest available adult around. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm as rascally as anybody else, and I've chased a lot of girls and smoked a lot of pot in my time. I do not drink at all. My parents were heavy drinkers, so I hated it. Uh-huh. But I'm not saying I'm a good guy or anything. I'm a gentleman, mm-hmm. and I am the nearest responsible adult around. You yeah. me? <laughs> so suddenly now, Ollie's tour has a tour manager. We're getting to places on time. We do the radio interviews. Uh-huh. He's charging more money. Ollie was making five grand a week when I came out with him. He was making eight grand a week when I left. Uh-huh. Uh, we would go anywhere, mostly because the bookers wanted him. So you know, it was okay. Just somebody knock on my hotel room door, and it's another comic sent to do the gig next week that we're leaving. Mm-hmm. With the paperwork for where they want all us to be for the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Once you can keep Ollie Joe Prater in line, <laughs> 30 minutes on stage ain't that hard. Yeah, no doubt. And that's that's really important. Uh, and, and I know that that did well for you. Having a business sense and an analytical sense, uh, a lot of comics don't have that. They've they've got the art, um, and they've got they they've got an angle, and but they don't know what to do with it. And um, obviously, it's a big deal that you made Ollie a big deal. Well, Ollie gave me my first job in Hollywood. I was in town two days. Walked up, and you and Joe Business Boy, I said, no, sir, since get off my curb. <laughs> Started talking, you want to be a comic? I could use a little help in here, sweep the place up. Okay, you can see the show tonight. End of the night, you want a job? Yeah, you in show business? Yeah, just here's the broom. Uh-huh. So I worked for him privately at the Westwood Comedy Store for two or three weeks before we got caught. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I got a real job. Yeah. <laughs> but he gave me my first shot, but he was victimizing me and making me do his work, but he had the power. Like Sam traded the power with Kenneth, uh, with Dice. Mm-hmm. Ali traded the power with me. Yeah. Now, they put non-comics in charge of the Westwood store after I left being manager, but uh-huh. I advised them to. <laughs> but well, I always wondered during the, the, the new Me Too movement, uh-huh. oh, God, Lou, did I ever tell a girl I'd, I'd take care of her at the comedy store just to sleep with her? Yeah. <laughs> no. I'm a gentleman. I'm an arrogant son of a bitch. If you don't want to sleep with me, you can't have all this stuff anyhow. <laughs> but I worried about it for a while. And then I sat down and went through every lover I ever had and went, Phew. <laughs> You're safe. <laughs> well, have you, uh, the last story in the book, uh, I told me not to do it. I do a lot of corporate shows. I always have. Uh-huh. So I do a lot of corporate shows for Microsoft and Apple. And I told them after a while I didn't want cash. They would say, oh, you want stock? I said, no, I want to use your time machine. Uh. <laughs> so how do you know about this? Long story short, I know. 
okay, just once. So I went back in time and told myself not what what not to do. To uh-huh. Get ahead. <laughs> Rule number one: Don't tell that Elvis joke in Tupelo. Yeah. Because <laughs> I got my ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs> it was a Dave Wilson joke. Do you know who Dave Wilson is? I, I've heard that name, but I don't know. Long time coming in Indianapolis. Uh huh. And only because you're from Indianapolis stops me from doing the joke right now. So I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> but that at some point you realize oh, God, I lost my point. <laughs> Zoom. What was I talking about? Um, oh, oh, things not to do. Got it. Yeah, things not to do. Don't, yeah. don't tell that Elvis joke in, El- uh, in Tupelo, number one. Number two, don't sleep with Mitzi. Even if she loves you and gives you everything she could give you, when uh, she's done with you, six months later, you're done at the store. Yeah. So I never slept with Mitzi. Yeah. And I got to stay seven years. It was like getting a degree in comedy. Not only can I, I know every job in a comedy club, I can perform them all mm. as well as run the club. Yeah. So a lot of agencies used me over the years for when they heard clubs were opening up and they said, well, we'll send Lou Deck in to help you learn how to get the stuff together. So yeah. I was good. So here's one I bet you don't know. We, uh, we invented how many cities did you work last year sometime in the nineties? Uh-huh. And I won. Yeah. Since then, another act from Texas has passed me by. Robert York, the juggler, worked more than 100 cities in 11 straight years than I did. Mm -hmm. Wow. Lost my record. Yeah. But now the thing is the rehire rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my rehire rate's about 85%. Yeah. Which means... 85% 85% of the people that have hired me in my career still hire me. Right. So if you do whole week clubs, you need, you can usually do a, a whole week club twice a year. If you're popular three times a year. Mm-hmm. So that I need 30 out of 52. I need 26 weeks, three times a year. And I work all year. Yeah. Nobody I know in LA has figured that out yet. Yeah. <laughs> they go out for a couple of weeks. They have a good time. They come back. They bring home a tenth of the money. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's business as well as continuing doing what you're doing. If it was a big call for me to stay in Los Angeles, I would. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I can remember the <laughs> Jim McCauley, the comic coordinator for the Tonight Show for Johnny Carson, says to me, Lou, what are you doing? I said, I'm being Lou. He says, yeah, but what's your role? I said, well, I'm I'm a stand-up. She's that's not your role. What's your job? I said, I'm uh, I'm Lou. He says, no, you're a spokesman monologist. Johnny Carson is a spokesman monologist. Jay Leno. He says, now look at the line in front of you. What? Spokesman monologist. Who's the best? Letterman. Who's the next? Leno. Who's the next? Shandling, who's the next? Argus Hamilton, who's the next? Arsenio, who's the next? Lou, how far back you are you in this line? <laughs> I said, I'm unwilling to say this is about 15. Mm-hmm. Three years to break them in. You're going to wait 45 years in this line. Get out of line. Find something else to do. Mm-hmm. I became a tour cop. <laughs> right? 
now yeah. for, for me to feel good about myself, I need to be on stage a couple of times a week. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but for me to feel good about being 35, I need more money than that. Yeah. So where's the job? It's a matter of eliminating why they shouldn't hire you. I can't make myself any more popular or any more different than what I'm doing right now. Mm. I'm growing as I go, but yeah. What can I do? Okay. Well, I don't drink. I don't chase waitresses. I never have burned a condo down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's so after a while, um, the comedy zone, which had, uh, 38 cities and Tom soul, which had, uh, 42 cities said Lou was comedy insurance. If you hire Lou, no matter who doesn't show, he can cover you. Mm-hmm. Just when he needs the weeks, uh, you know, fill him for him. And then you can call him in a pinch. Mm-hmm. I need you to tell me four minutes before we're done. Cause I have a closing story. Okay. We'll do. Um, I did want to ask about, uh, you know, I, I stalked you quite a bit before we did the interview and looked at all the videos and stuff like that. You, you had a, um, episode um on youtube where you're talking to students um and there's two things i want to talk about about that the first thing you talked about was um they they must have performed the night before or something like that and you told them they all went over um i think they had three minutes and 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 they all went over and uh you talked about um how that's that's death in the comedy world and, and, uh, how, how to come combat that. Can you kind of paraphrase, can you kind of tell me what that was all about? Okay. Uh, 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 let's be real. We may be artists, but to the people that hire us, we are time fillers. Mm -hmm. They're very specific about what the time they want filled. Mm. I don't care how funny you are. If you talk into the next commercial, they'll cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> know your time. Yeah. Give them the light. They don't know their time. Mm-hmm. So having fought act after act after act in the, at the comedy store for years, you got a reputation for knowing your time or you didn't. Mm-hmm. I have a reputation for knowing my time, but it's mostly because I would wear a stopwatch and compare and record every set mm. later time it. How much time did I think it was on the on stage at the time? How much time was it actually? In the end, I come down to a countdown timer. Uh, if I'm going out to do 45 minutes, I set it for 40 minutes when it beeps and I can just slap my wrist and turn it off. I know I have five minutes left Go into my four minute and a half closer. Mm-hmm. So I start using that technique to be on time and it's so popular with the booking bookers and the club owners. And so I get more gigs because of it. Uh-huh. And then it's amongst the bookers. Lou stays on time. Yeah. And amongst the inside people, Oh, let's play with him. So I used to have a, a thing going with carnival cruise line. I'm doing 35, but tell me any time within six minutes of that. And I'll get off in 30 seconds. Uh-huh. Of what? time you choose wow and then i just set my countdown timer for four and a half minutes less than what they told me mm-hmm. now i'm known for doing my time now yeah. the way to do that is to rehearse it in the uh the bathroom and time it yeah to time it on stage and record it and compare what you thought against what the tape says right but knowing your time will get you more gigs 
and lose you more gigs if you don't. Mm. I need pros here. At a certain level, all of us are funny. I want to work with pros. I want to work with people who are not a problem. Yep. Now, yeah. Now, piece if, of if shit. That funny. <laughs> I'll put up with a little bit. Yeah. But at the comedy store, we have 35 acts in three different rooms, and I, I can't handle you breaking format that much mm-hmm. unless you're one of ours. Yeah. Go ahead. Because now you know what you're doing. Yeah. Rather than somebody coming in trying to wreck my show, he's wrecking his own show. He's one of ours. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm saying, it, you know, nothing is 100% every time the same way except wanting to do right by the show. I see the thing that's hurting comedy stand-up itself more now than any ever time is they've gone past the correct time of ending the show. Yeah. We've calculated it better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. A show should go uh, an hour 40 max, an hour 50 if the headliner's killing. Mm -hmm. Get the headliner off at 50, 55, let him do a five-minute uh, uh, encore, and we got to clean the room and sell it again. But the yep. worst part is the crowd's tired, and they quit laughing Yeah, as much. I've experienced that, yeah. So uh, I don't care how long you've been doing comedy or what your club is. I'm from the comedy store. Mm-hmm. We, we know. <laughs> hour you know, 40, it's funny. Hour 45. Yeah, it's funny. The last thing I did before the pandemic hit was a, a, a it was a comedy contest, and it was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And one of the things that I learned, and I'm I'm a baby in comedy. It's a hobby for me. So the thing that I learned is to understand what the time the time is, and make sure you stay under that time, or you're dead to that club. And so I'm doing this contest and I, I got eight minutes. And so I practiced it so many times and I did it in front of an audience and all that. And I, I knew it was eight minutes and that was pausing for laugh breaks and everything like that. And when I um, went up, I totally spaced a tag on my joke and I came out at seven minutes, 42 seconds. So uh, I was, I was right there. I was right at eight minutes. So um, that's, that's what somebody told me that uh, right at the beginning. And I think, I think you really kind of bring that home that, uh, you know, clubs want professional people. They want people that show up on time. They do the time that they're supposed to do. And that's nice, please. Yeah. Yeah. If I hired you to come leave your city and come to my city and you walk in in a smelly old raggy t-shirt, I may yep. not put you on. Yeah. I'll offer you the shirt I'm wearing first. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to pay for that. Yeah. Now, if you're Mark Marin, I'll say something snide and expects you to change it before tomorrow night. Yeah. But if I don't know you, you created a hell of an impression with me. Exactly. It's funny. I just I saw, in a couple I, of books. I just saw Mark, uh, a few months ago and he was, he was actually dressed pretty well for him. So yes, well, he'd get, gotten a new jacket and everything. And <laughs> Ooh. Uh, can I mention a few books? Yes. Uh, the one book, and this is outside of religious texts. Uh, the one book that I've read in my life that meant absolutely the most is a very older book. It's, uh, 
How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Yeah. And I read it in the 60s, in the 70s. I've read it every decade since. What I find that the techniques he taught me make my business nicer for me and the people I come in contact with Mm -hmm. than any other factor in my career. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciate now more than ever. My mother raised me to be a gentleman with manners and speak well, but what has made me a success in my career is learning how to be friends and influence people. Now Mm -hmm. I need a friend to buy the product. I need a, the people to uh, uh, laugh for me. It's yeah. as simple as that. It's funny. After if, that, if I was in my office right now, um, I could pick up that book and show it to you because uh, um, I've been with the same company. I, I have a real day job and I've been with the same company for 15 years and that's the first book they give you. Um, it's a, it's a local company, um, and you know, a small business, but, uh, the owner was, is very passionate that everybody that starts with that company needs to read that book. And it's on my desk all the time. Well, they still teach Dale Carnegie public speaking in YMCA's all over the world. Mm -hmm. Lavish praise and hearty approbation. (laughs) Translate that into today's words. I really couldn't but I could give it to you in the sixties with my mother's favorite saying, mm-hmm. be nice. Yeah. Just be nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I'm not actually a Californian. I'm an LA comic. Uh-huh. If I claimed anything, it would be that I, pff, I was born in Texas, raised in Georgia. I'm a gentleman, Southern gentleman, sir. Mm-hmm. And that at the end of life, I want to be who I wanted to be. I performed everywhere. I think uh, the count is 23 different countries, all but three states, 100 cities in a year, 12 different years. Oh, um, oh! I told you I had a closing story. Are we getting close? Uh, what, I've got one more one more question, okay. um, and I ask this of everybody, and then okay. then then we'll go into the story. Um, and I'm going to ask this differently to you because you've been around a while. Um, what do you? This is what I ask most of the most of the younger comics. What three things do you know now that you wished you knew when you started? Um, I, what I want to say to you or ask to you is, what are the three most important things you think a new comic should know before they even start? Okay, number one, comedy doesn't work if you're not a good public speaker. Comedy is communication. They've studied for hundreds of years on how to communicate well. You doesn't it doesn't matter how funny you are if they don't hear you or they don't like you or they don't understand you. Present mm. your message well. Second, be you. It's going to mm. take you three, four years, two, three hundred shows before you find your voice. Uh, there may be other people out there that fit your physical description, but nobody is you. The Mm -hmm. one thing you have to sell is you and it's unique. Yeah. So tell me how you did doing things we all do. Tell me 
Uh, why is brushing your teeth funny? Why is going to bed funny? Why is this, the everyday experiences that the audiences share with the performer start there? Mm-hmm. And your viewpoint and your understanding and your experiences there. Um, and to that end, uh, it's still true. You catch a lot more flies with honey than you do vinegar. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> And dress nice. It's show business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, how do you tell somebody not from Los Angeles? It's the image. <laughs> and that if you act like a bum, you'll get treated like a bum. If you uh-huh. look like a bum, you'll get treated like a bum. Yeah. Uh, come up with a product that will make your grandmother proud and your mother proud. and more other people will buy it than any other product. Mm. Um, uh, George Carlin said, every time you curse, you cheat yourself at a chance to be creative. Yep. So work clean for the first 10 years. Mm. And if you work a place where being dirty will help, we'll be dirty there, but don't be dirty in other places because you can't sell it. Mm. Lastly, never give up. Mm. Never, ever give up. Because the time you give up chases away the investment you made. If you want it, give it all. Mm. And it's good that way. It give you back what you gave it. So yeah. I gave stand up my entire life and it gave me back more than I could possibly tell you. Right. Now? Now, two, two more things. Okay. I, I don't want you to think I was rude when I was looking down. I take notes. Uh, I take notes, everybody I talk to, and um, maybe this will be a book for me someday, and uh, you'll, you'll be featured in it. But if I, do, I can write I, a book, you can write a book. Write it. Yeah. I do. I do like to take notes because, you know, if I, if I don't, I forget what we talked about, and I don't want to listen to a whole podcast of uh, my voice to remember it. So. So, you know, and the other thing is, I just want to point out, if somebody made it to this far in the video, um, I just want to point out, I shaved my beard and I left the mustache on just so uh, I could be a mini Lou for this, for this uh, interview. Maybe shave tomorrow, but I'm keeping it for a while. (laughs) Now let's hear that story, Lou. I break out of the comedy store in, um, 84, um, Bob Zaney, a number of other acts are mm. producing around California and I'm getting opportunity to leave. Mitzi notices I'm not there on the weekend, the important nights and ask me and then says, well, maybe you should come back in six months. <laughs> and I went and performed in Palm Springs and a guy walked up to me and said, uh, you ever thought of doing a military show? I said, well, I did a lot of military stuff when I was in the military, but not necessarily a stand up. He said, well, I have something next week. Can you be here? I wasn't going to be in Palm Springs because he mentioned it was for the Marines. I came back and drove you know, six hours to get to the show to make a hundred dollars. Mm. They were marvelous. But what I didn't know was I was passing a test for the guy that hired me. A month later, he calls me up and he says, would you like to do a USO tour? Which means United Service Organizations. Today, people will think Bob Hope entertaining the troops. Mm. And that's my analogy. It was, I'm Bob Hope, though. Yeah. So uh, I said, well, uh, what's the time scale? What's the money reference? Uh, um, fill me in. It seemed acceptable. 
then they put conditions on me. I had to submit the entire act in triplicate written for it to be approved. Nobody walks onto an army base and says certain things publicly and you have to agree to it. So they want to check what you're doing. Anyhow, it took two months. They come back and uh, said, okay, uh, next month you start three places in California and then show up in Cali uh, San Francisco, get on an airplane and go to the Orient. Cool. <laughs> Turned out to be three federal prisons. We performed in three federal prisons, closing with uh, Quentin. And uh, I'm working to what pretty much looks like a movie theater. Uh-huh. And everybody's right in front of me, and one guy way over here. And then I'm only doing 15 minutes, so I'm getting to work pretty well. I notice I'm not making the guy way over there laugh, so I kind of play to him a little bit. Still nothing. Finally, I tell the audience right before my closers, I'm going to go check. And I hear them go, ooh. And I turned around and walked over to Charlie Manson, and I saw who he was. Oh, no. <laughs> Ran back to the middle of the audience. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. And everybody <laughs> <laughs> We went and uh, got on an airplane in uh, Almeida, flew to uh, the Philippines. We were performed for 22 straight days because there's so many American Air Force bases, uh, military bases on the Philippines, that there's that many shows. Mm. And a lot of times, like at Clark Air Force Base, hey, 27,000 people live here. Uh, we got to do stay here three days and do three shows a day. Mm-hmm. End of story. We're all over the uh, the island. We finished back, and we're going to do one State Department show at the palace, the Malacang Palace, for the president, uh, Frederick uh, Marcos and Isabella. So I go do my show. We are in a diplomatic waiting line later, and uh, he comes by, and he says, uh, very funny, very funny. His English is as good as mine. He says, mm -hmm. I like your cat jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I do anything for you? And I said, well, I prepared for the moment. Out of the pocket comes a picture of Grandpa. Grandpa died in World War II here in the Philippines in a prison war camp. We never heard anything. Mom got a telegram five years after the uh, the war saying killed in action, no details. Mm -hmm. He says, well, Abed, 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 Abed gives me a general. General Abed, Abed, Abed gives me a colonel. Abed, Abed, Abed gives me a lieutenant and says, call me tomorrow. It took me three days. I went to six cemeteries. And I found my grandfather's grave. Oh, wow. And here's the punchline. I quit law school to be a stand-up comic. Forty years later, my mother is still pissed off about it. <laughs> but in 1985, I found her father's grave in the Philippines. Uh -huh. Because I was telling jokes yeah. on the other side of the world uh-huh thank you mitzi yeah thank you comedy store thank you the lady goddess of comedy it gave me everything i ever wanted and still mm. give me more yeah including the gift of your show yeah well i really thank you, thank you enough i'm sitting here with no pants on for god's sake but i dressed up nice 